Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The mountains of Avikwame rise up from the Mojave Desert and are among the most sacred places for several of the area's tribes. After years of advocacy, the land was on the verge of an official national monument declaration by President Biden just last week. Those plans changed abruptly, but only because of logistical reasons. We'll get a reminder on the importance of Avikwame and discuss the recent push to collaborate with the federal government on protection and management of sacred and important places. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The failure of a bill in South Dakota means there will be no task force studying the welfare of Native children in the state. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's C.J. Keene checks in on what's next. Native children make up a disproportionate number of children in the state's foster care system, which led to the initial interest in the study. Representative Perry Poyer, in a recent appearance on SDPB's In the Moment, says this has been on lawmakers' minds for some time. This has been a long-standing issue. Um, for as long as I could remember, um, at least documented um, about 20 years. It's been at 60%. 60% of children in the system are, are native children, and they wanted to come together and address it. Puyer says the issue requires involvement from state government. Where do we go from now? Well, we got to go back to the drawing table. The fight never ends until positive outcomes happen for native children. And a lot of people will probably say, I, I hear this time and time again, why don't the tribes just fix it on their own? We are South Dakotans as well. Yes, we have tribal nations, but there are native children all across the state of South Dakota. It's an issue that touches every corner of South Dakota's native community. Lower Burrell Sioux Tribe Chairman Clyde Estes thanked the bill sponsors. He says he doesn't expect this issue to go away after the session. With some of the sponsors of the bill and uh, the support we have on the tribal and uh, some of our state supporters that uh, we will bring this issue back up again. The fact of the matter is thus is tribal and state leaders need to find uh, a better path forward to work together to put aside our differences to do what's best for all South Dakota children. SB 191 died on the floor of the state house just one step away from the governor's desk. Opponents raised concerns over costs and the members making up the committee. For National Native News, I'm C.J. Keene in Rapid City. A bipartisan bill in Congress aims to bolster tribal law enforcement and combat the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous people. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, the effort would enhance access to data and increase officer retention. The Badges Act is designed to increase tribal access to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System and conduct training and information gathering to improve the resolution of missing persons cases. Tribal police often face roadblocks because of a lack of access to federal crime data. The bill would also allow the Bureau of Indian Affairs to conduct its own background checks to to improve the process of hiring officers. Arizona Representative Ruben Gallego is a co-sponsor of the bill. We need to empower these communities to protect themselves and give them their opportunity to really bring safety to their community and doesn't just necessarily have to happen from us at the federal level. Gallego hopes the bill will help with officer recruitment and retention on tribal nations by offering more
more access of culturally appropriate mental health and wellness programs to BIA officers and tribal police and by mandating a report on tribal law enforcement needs. Through the Badges Act, a grant program would be established to support state and tribal investigations of missing and murdered persons and sexual assault cases. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff, Arizona. As of Monday morning, three Alaska Native mushers were battling it out for the top spot in the Iditarod. The 1,000-mile sled dog race from Anchorage to Nome, Ryan Reddington, a Nanupiat with roots in Unalakleet, has been out in front in the last stretch of the race. 2019's Iditarod champ, Pete Kaiser, remains in second place. Kaiser is Yupik from Bethel. Richie Deal, a Denina Athabaskan from Antioch, was in third. Another Native musher, Mike Williams Jr., Yupik from Akiak, remains in the back of the pack, keeping a steady pace. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Hope rose briefly when the White House announced President Joe Biden would fly to Nevada and formally dedicate 450,000 acres into the Avikwame National Monument. The administration abruptly canceled that trip. Tribes and others say they await further communication from the White House and Department of Interior on what happens next. Biden has promised the National Monument status for the area that at least a dozen tribes consider sacred. Much of the land is already controlled by the Bureau of Land Management. A monument designation will add additional protections while preserving tribal access for cultural and spiritual reasons. Today we'll get a reminder about the importance of the Avikwame land and the work that's been done to gain federal protection. We want to hear from you. What do you think about working together with the federal government to protect important land? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's one 800 Native. Joining us now from Las Vegas, Nevada is Taylor Patterson. She's the executive director of the Native Voter Alliance of Nevada. She's Bishop Paiute. Taylor, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you so much, Sean. Good morning, and I'm so excited to be here. Good morning to you as well, Taylor. And joining us from Henderson, Nevada is Alan O'Neill. He's the advisor for the National Parks Conservation Association, founder of Get Outdoors Nevada and a former National Park Service superintendent. Alan, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you so much, John. It's a real pleasure to be here. Taylor, this postponement of the Abiquame National Monument dedication, what do you know about the delay and how concerning is it to you? It's definitely disappointing. So um, this past Friday, March 10th, was actually 100 days since 
President Biden um, announced at the White House Tribal Summit his intention to designate a Vikwame. So I'm definitely disappointed. Um, you know, we had this big high moment of excitement uh, when we when news broke uh, and a bunch of leaks happened that uh, the president would be coming out to Las Vegas and would be uh, finally designating the monument. Um, once we had also learned that uh, those plans had been walked back, it was very disappointing. So I'm just hoping that uh, we can get it soon. And to my knowledge, there's no big issue. Or I know that was the, uh, the question on a lot of people's minds was, oh, no, is this putting the monument at risk? Is there an issue? Is this not going to be designated moving forward? But I still remain really hopeful that things are going forward as planned. It was just a scheduling issue. Alan, same question to you. I, I know it's been a few years since you've been personally involved, but how do you feel now that the president is so much closer to designating Avikwa May as a national monument? Well, we're excited. This has been a long process. We started this process, I would say, back in the late 1990s when we uh, were working to get uh, Spirit Mountain itself designated as a traditional cultural property. And we've been through a uh, long process to try and get this uh, landscape protected, uh, uh, fighting, you know, really bad industrial level projects in this landscape and and our efforts uh, to to really work on the, the National Monument uh, started in, 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 in about three years ago uh, when when the Department of Interior canceled the Crescent Peak Wind Project, uh, we we got together uh, and decided that you know if we didn't do anything quickly, uh, we're going to lose this landscape to uh, industrial development, which would forever change the character of this because there's a lot of work over the years that have been done to protect uh, part of this East Mojave landscape on the California side with the Mojave National Preserve and the Mojave Trails National Monument and the Castle Mountains National Monument. But that same level of protection wasn't done on the Nevada side over the years. So we, even though some of this, a lot of this landscape was overlaid with a area of critical environmental concern to protect the desert tortoise that was an administrative determination that could be changed by future administrations and such so we wanted to have permanent protection so this effort started in earnest i would say in about uh, march of uh, 2019 it's about three years ago taylor until recently tribes have been a little bit weary of partnering with the federal government on protecting sacred lands can you tell us what are the advantages and disadvantages that come with this? So I, of course, I completely understand that wariness and sort of the hesitation because so often we've had issues in the past working with the federal government. I don't need to tell Indian country how rough it's been for us um, with the federal government. But when you're looking at a place specifically like Nevada, where we're over 85% public lands, most of the lands that we held sacred are not in tribal control. They're not land that we already have access to, nor is it land that we are able to either buy back or to get sovereignty over. So working with the federal government is essential in putting us back into that process and putting tribal leadership back into the, the conversation. You know, I think it can be 
really dependent too on um, the agency you're working with. I know everybody has a different experience in Nevada. Um, we really heavily work with Bureau of Land Management. And I know for a lot of the tribes I speak with that are on both sides of the border, whether that's California, Nevada, Arizona, Nevada, you know, we have a lot of tribes that are in both states um, all over the border of Nevada. Uh, the difference in BLM can really vary depending on which side of the border you're on. So it's a process that can be really tough, but I think what's important is that we're the federal government and agencies are getting better at consultation. Is there leaps and bounds that they have to go? Absolutely. But the more we push to work with them, the more they're going to get better at it. And so I think it's it's a good process. I think we can still grow a lot. And I know at the federal level, there's been an effort placed on consultation and going into meaningful consultation. Um, I also know that the state of Nevada has worked at the state legislature level to try to strengthen that bond, um, but I know all of the states surrounding us have been working on that process as well. I think some of the issue that occurs when working with the federal government is really creating a true meaningful sovereignty and, um, you know, true right over the land and true stewardship, because I think we've talked a lot in Indian country about co-stewardship and co-management, but trying to figure out what that really means to each tribe and to each project has been very different. And so, you know, I think all of us know that the number one goal for Indian country right now is land back, for the tribes to have absolute control over the pieces of land that were stolen from us in the beginning. Um, but right now we're having to work within the confines of these processes that already exist. And so it can be a little frustrating when working within those boundaries and trying to balance, you know, this is a federal piece of land, but, you know, we are stewards of these pieces of lands and have been since the beginning of time. So it can be a balance. And what I see is that things are getting better and better as we go. I think, you know, um, the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition would was a really great step and I think they led the way in so many facets of this process. And I hope that Avikwame is, you know, continuing on the gains that we got from Bears Ears and hopefully there'll be a new project after this that pushes it even further. Well you mentioned co-stewardship and I, I know on this show we deal with similar land issues and uh, much of Native America is really divided. I mean, there are some folks that say, yeah, you know, a co-stewardship model that can really work, working within the federal government. And then other folks uh, are saying, you know, no, Native tribes, Native communities should be the sole managers. It, it, they should completely uh, take care of the land themselves with no involvement from state and federal officials. So it's interesting to hear your perspective. And earlier, uh, before the show, we were chatting and you shared that there are 28 tribes in Nevada and of course, there are also some of these California tribes that have a stake in Avicua Mesa. So who've been some of the, the tribal uh, communities that have been really helping to, to push uh, and advance uh, these protections for Avicua Mesa? Yeah, so uh, Fort Mojave Indian Tribe has been a phenomenal leader in this project. And um, Alan mentioned earlier the process to designate Spirit Mountain itself as a um, cultural property and their commitment to Avikwame and this entire area has not diminished in all of that time. And their chairman, I 
I always hearken back to this because it was uh, one of the most powerful things and I think really illustrated to our elected officials how our tribes feel about this process. But, you know, we were waiting for a meeting to happen with the Clark County um, commissioners and they apologized to him for making him wait. And he said, you know, Fort Mojave Indian tribe has been here since time and memoriam and we will wait as long as it takes to have this done. And having that commitment from Fort Mojave has been so important and they've been such a leader in that process. And so they have been really taking lead on this. Um, however, it, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is sacred to over a dozen tribes. Um, you know, they have the Quipson and the Colorado River Indian tribes, the Wallapai, uh, so many that <laughs> I can't even mention. And, um, nearly all of them have done a tribal resolution or a letter of support to support this project. Also, our Southern Paiute bands have been really supportive as well, because while Vikwame is not tied to their creation story, like it is for the other tribes I mentioned, for the Southern Paiute, it's um, a part of the traditional salt song trail. And so it's also a very, very special and important place to the cultural history of the Southern Paiute as well. And so Everybody has done a, a, their part to show their support for this monument and to protect these lands. And I totally, you know, hear what you're saying about these co-stewardship models. But as we're we're talking about the 28 tribes of Nevada and, and these other tribes is, you know, our tribes are not like, say, Navajo Nation, where you have 399,000 members and are, are you know, very um, bureaucratically structured. Uh, we have a lot smaller tribes here in Nevada, and, and to have Taylor, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a short break, but I'll let you finish when we come back. You're listening to Native America Calling. Heating costs are the highest they've been in at least a decade. That adds to the financial woes a number of people are facing depending on their location. But a long-standing federal program is reaching out to Native residents who might be eligible for assistance paying for both heating costs in the winter and cooling costs in summer. We'll hear more about it on the next Native America Calling. Ah, halt. If you are age 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colon cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the Marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're getting an update on the push to name more than 700 square miles of land in Nevada a national monument. President Biden promised to put Avikwame under federal monument protection. However, just last week, he postponed a chance to follow through. Do you have a comment or question about today's show? Are you concerned what the delay regarding federal protections for Avikwame might mean? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848, one 2848 our phone lines are open. We've got Taylor Patterson on the line in Las Vegas, Nevada, where she's the executive director of the Native Voter Alliance of Nevada. And Taylor, before break, you were talking a little bit about the uniqueness of Nevada tribes. And with regard to co this co-stewardship model, please continue your what you were saying. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what I was drawing the comparison to is, you know, we have a lot smaller tribes in Nevada and um, frankly are just under-resourced to completely manage a, a big parcel of land like Aviquime. Um, and so what I was talking about before with all of the tribes that have been involved in this project, it really takes a lot of tribes to put work into this to be able to even get the federal designation, let alone to have like complete co-stewardship over these um, parcels of land. And so my point, while long-winded, is that, you know, we're smaller tribes out here and it's going to take a lot of us to really be able to band together and get this project done. Um, and so we've seen that with uh, Aviquame and the entire process of getting everybody that has ancestral ties involved in this. Also on the show today is Alan O'Neill, a former National Park Service superintendent. Alan, do you see any drawbacks to national monument status with regard to tribal lands such as Aviquame? No, I don't. I, I obviously uh, we see this as an opportunity to have the tribes uh, playing a much larger role in the planning and and stewardship of this area. Um, but I think uh, I think the national monument uh, designation was the is the right vehicle because it provides permanent protection, and uh, this is something the tribes been interested in a long time. Um, you know, this is their ancestral lands, and uh, and it's important that uh, we we have uh, that they play a large role in how this is eventually stewarded. This is a uh, you know it's it's an important cultural and historic landscape, but it's also a very important ecological landscape. Uh, you know, this is this is probably the best. Uh, this is the best uh, desert tortoise habitat we have anywhere in Nevada, but as important as a desert tortoise is, there's also 50 other uh, um, plant and animal species that are listed as, as special status because there's some concern about their conservation uh, uh, over the long term. So having that concentration of, of special status species in this landscape, it's important that they be protected. It's also the the uh, the eastern terminus of the world's largest Joshua tree forest. In fact, the uh, largest Joshua tree in Nevada is found within this landscape. Uh, and unusual for the Mojave Desert, this this is uh, this has a very unique grasslands, which you usually don't find in the Mojave Desert. So there's like 28 species of of native grasses that are in here and and very significant for uh, for desert. I just I can't recall any place within the Mojave Desert that has these kind of grasslands. So um, you know, in addition, um, you know, the this is important for uh, bighorn sheep migration. They move back and forth between these mountains. It's a an important birding area. So this area is actually designated by Audubon as an important birding area. It's adjacent to the Pacific Flyway coming up the Colorado River system, but it also has an unusual combination of birds, some of which are more common in the Sonoran Desert. So, you know, in terms of raptor species, there's like 28, uh, 18 different raptor species here. It's also 
area has one of the highest concentrations of uh, golden eagles anywhere in the state. So, you know, um, you know, from a from a ecological and cultural standpoint, this is an incredible landscape. But it's also for resources like dark night sky and natural quiet and the visual resource. Uh, this landscape does offer the opportunity to protect some of that dark night sky and and uh, kind of the rural life uh, lifestyle here. And Alan, if you could share, what was the most pressing threat to Aviqua Ame, which makes these protections so valuable? Well, it was uh, industrial development, primarily uh, uh, wind development and some solar. Um, there are two really bad wind projects, the Searchlight Wind Project, followed by uh, which was actually a suit brought by a private landowner in here and prevailed against BLM and uh, and the court suit, uh, um, you know, canceled that project. And then the Crescent Peak Wind Project, which was a devastating wind project in terms of here, it created an industrial island surrounded by, you know, area that we've, we've worked decades trying to protect. And that particular project had like 200, over 200 uh, wind turbines, uh, you know, about 700 feet high with about 20 miles of ridge line. So that would have forever changed this landscape. And so when the Department of Interior in December of 2018 canceled that Crescent Peak wind project, that was kind of a, a wake up call that we better get our act together here and determine what it is we wanna do collectively uh, to protect this landscape, or we're going to come, we're going to be fighting the next bad project. And we're all supportive of renewable energy, but like Taylor said, it's, it depends upon location. Worst possible place you could put okay. renewable it, energy is, yeah, yeah. And along those lines, with regard to to location, I mean, what does this mean for the energy supply uh, without a wind farm at this location of Equamay? Are there any alternatives for, for those projects to, to still provide renewable energy? Oh, absolutely. We have, I mean, this is the renewable energy capital of the country in Nevada right now. We, I think BLM in, in Southern Nevada has like 50 or 60 solar projects in the, in the review process. And statewide, because as Taylor said, 85% of of Nevada's public land, um, there's efforts all over the state for where that renewable energy should take place. So yeah, we we think there's plenty of alternative places uh, here, and that's they're they're being processed, and a number of them have been approved in the last several years. Taylor, going back to President Biden's uh, upcoming announcement when he'll formally dedicate of Iquamea as a national monument. Can you compare that process or this this process to, for instance, uh, when Bears Ears National Monument was designated? Uh, I think the concern is, could another president come along in the future and undo these protections? Yeah, it's insanely difficult to predict the future. <laughs> but mm. um, of course, uh, as as you know, um, administrations change. There's always the risk to these landscapes 
particularly these ones that are designated um, with the Antiquities Act, that um, they can be denigrated by future administrations. However, you know, there was a lot of discussion about what the, the Trump administration had done being was that it was illegal. And so, you know, I hope in the future that we will, if that were to ever, God forbid, happen, that we will take any steps possible to protect this landscape. And if that includes legal action against the government, you know, I think Indian country is always friendly <laughs> to doing that. And I know that um, we are all ready to put our money where our mouth is and make sure that this landscape is protected. Because as Alan said, it's not just the cultural resources, it's the ecological resources. And um, to add to what Alan said, I believe um, when BLM released their, um, you know, statements on renewable projects for the future of Nevada, you know, I think they said they have um, over twice the amount of land needed to, to meet our renewable, renewable portfolio standards in Nevada. So we have plenty of land to pick from that doesn't include all of these very, very sacred sites. Nevada is definitely a large state. Believe me, I've made that that trip from Reno south to Las Vegas, and <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of highway there and a lot of open land. I'll tell you, Taylor. Uh, let's go back to to what the management of the park will look like. Now, earlier you mentioned sounds like Fort Mojave is going to step up and play a major role in that. Yes, absolutely, and I think that is actually the most exciting part about this project. You know, I have been on this now. I want to say three years, and um, it's been really exciting to work to get the designation, and um, hopefully we'll get that official designation soon. Like I said, we've just passed 100 days since Biden has made his commitment. Um, but to me, the most exciting part is what comes next, and that is the management plan of this project. And, um, you know, as you mentioned and I mentioned, Fort Mojave has been really invested in how to move forward and get more co-stewardship in this space. And I think we're going to see maybe some new policies, I hope, spring out of this project and um, new possibilities for tribes as they go forward negotiating um, with BLM and the federal government. Now, in addition to Avikwame, what other Native lands would you like to see protected as national monuments going forward? I think the opportunity is not just in national monuments, but I think we have um, a lot of different land protections and designations that we can use to protect our sacred sites. Um, here near Las Vegas, we have um, a project that's kind of budding, uh, but it's on the east side of town and includes some really interesting geological sites, um, but also is a sacred space for our southern Paiute tribes, particularly the Las Vegas and Moapa bands of Paiute. Um, also, the Goshoot, who are both a Nevada and Utah tribe, have the Swamp Cedars, and that is a project that um, I hope is going to be moving forward. We have taken steps at the state level to ask for additional protections of the these plants in this landscape, uh, but I think a national monument could be really wonderful in that area as well. Plus, I know um, your show has done some talk about the lithium mining here in Nevada. They're was a very big push for um, Thacker Pass or Pahimaha to be protected in northern Nevada as well. So there is no shortage of landscapes in Nevada that I think deserve national monument status or even a different level of protection. And Taylor, what have you learned from Avikwame that will assist you and your constituents going forward with these other land protection projects? 
I've been really surprised and happy about um, the call and movement towards Indigenous voices really being respected in the space. Um, I tell this story a lot, but I think it's really important because when my grandma uh, graduated from Stewart Indian School, uh, the matron of the school told her, just pretend you're not Indian and you'll get further in life. And so we have a culture, as you know, and all of your listeners know, of just assimilation and trying to not be Native and to, to really just be white. And so now we're having this movement of restoration and healing and people that have held on to their culture and are now being asked to, to protect the spaces that we've known about all along. And so it's really powerful to me that now, you know, there is a space not just for tribal leadership, but for folks like me that run tribal nonprofits to really be involved in lands projects because we know the spaces that we've been calling for protections of forever since colonization began are the spaces that now, um, you know, biological diversity exists in, geological diversity exists in, and people are now starting to pay attention and go, wow, these Indians knew what they were talking about the whole time. Even our traditional burn practices or irrigation practices are becoming um, a hot topic. We're we're all of it's all of a sudden cool to be native, and I'm happy. To, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> it is cool to be native. I thought it was always cool to be native. <laughs> Maybe I'm... listen. It's a good a good day to be Indian, right? And there you go. I, but I think it, it it's interesting because. Like I said, you know, my grandma had that experience and, you know, all of our boarding school survivors, I think, kind of went two directions, either to assimilation or to really, really hanging on. And my grandparents uh, were kind of on both ends of the spectrums with that. But now, you know, we got such a problem of people pretending to be Indian. It's a whole other world now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, if you'd like to get into this conversation, uh, we sure would like some listener input. Uh, we are talking about the Aviqua May Monument, federal protections that are coming up, uh, hopefully before very long. The number to call, 1-800-996-2848. Our phone lines are open, so give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Alan, we're going to have to take a break here in a couple of minutes, but if you could help us out here and explain the difference between uh, a national monument, like what's been proposed here with Aviqua May and other park designations. Alan, I think we might, might have stepped oh, away oh. there. Oh, oh we... I, thought you, I thought you were taking a break. Well, <laughs> no, you know, we... We looked at different uh, categories and such, and we we thought that the national monument uh, category would would be the best in terms of giving us some flexibility. Uh, there's a there's a kind of a real subtle difference between a national park, a national conservation area, and a national monument. Uh, basically, they're all similar, but we had a little more flexibility with the national monument. Obviously, the monument. Goals would be to protect that native of uh, uh, plants and wildlife, um, as well as protecting the sacred American cultural sites, values, and practices. But in this particular landscape, it was important to protect the existing recreation uses as well. There's about 500 miles of backcountry road here, and a lot of the users of this landscape wanted to to see those designated roads made to be left open 
so people can enjoy that. And so we feel that was an important thing to do as well, since our backcountry road system has been in place for several decades. And so uh, also the monument uh, designation allowed us to uh, honor existing mining claims and private landowner rights. Um, but we also wanted to prevent the monument uh, prevents that fragmentation that I mentioned before uh, that's caused by large-scale development. And then protection of the dark night sky and, and such. These are all elements of protection within it. And we feel like permanent protection was important. Having, having part of that overlaid as an administrative determination as a area of critical environmental concern, although that was important as a first layer of protection, over the last while, it wasn't permanent protection. It could be changed by future okay. administrations. All righty. We're listening to Alan, Alan O'Neill, and he's a former National Park Service superintendent. We'll be right back. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort in Tulsa, Oklahoma, June 26th to the 29th. Learn how tribes are using self-governance for the delivery of programs and services for their citizens and communities, and how this authority improves the health and well-being of tribal communities. Registration closes June 23rd at tribalselfgov.org. We're glad you're listening to Native America Calling today. I'm Sean Spruce. A former National Monument, excuse me, a formal National Monument dedication is pending for the Nevada land known as Avikwame. We're getting an update on that action by the president. And if you have something to add to today's discussion, let us know. 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Taylor Patterson is the executive director of the Nevada Voter Alliance of Nevada. And Taylor, for folks who might be listening to the show today who have never been to Avikwame before, can you tell us exactly where the land is located and, and perhaps a visual description so we can get a better feel for what it is? Yeah, so it is south of Las Vegas um, between a little mining town called Searchlight, Nevada, and um, Laughlin, Nevada, uh, which is along the Colorado River. Uh, for those that haven't been to Nevada, you know, I think it, the way I can uh, describe it best, at least on a map, is it's way below kind of where Nevada um, starts its little point at the bottom. And as you mentioned, we're talking around 450,000 acres, so a giant piece of land. Um, and when we're talking about the, like, aesthetics of this piece of land, I, it's hard to describe because... It's gorgeous, and Alan mentioned earlier um, that it's home to some of the world's largest Joshua trees. And so, this these Joshua tree forests that exist in the area are unbelievable. And for those of you that aren't uh, super familiar with Joshua trees, you know they're only growing, you know, about an inch every few years. So it takes thousands of years for these Joshua trees to get to the size we're seeing of, you know, five, six feet tall. So we have gorgeous Joshua trees, um, some really beautiful, beautiful mountains that uh, kind of run the gamut geologically. They all look very different. And uh, I have had the wonderful experience of taking quite a few people out to this monument area. And Alan has done that as well. He's our 
number one tour guide, essentially, where he's bringing a lot of folks out to see. And what I can tell you is that people are really surprised because, you know, you're flying down the, the 93 to get to Laughlin or to get to, you know, like Havasu or whatever. And you don't see all of these really, really beautiful pieces of the landscape. You know, you're just cruising by and looking and thinking, wow, this is a big old empty piece of land. But it's not. I mean, it has some really gorgeous sights to it. And uh, what I can tell you is that every time we bring somebody out there, whether it's, you know, an average person or the national director of BLM, their hearts are completely changed and they understand why this area needs protection. Mm. Alan, we have a caller who asked a question and it relates to earlier when you were describing uh, national monument status as opposed to other park designations. And they want to know whether the monument status designation will provide hunting and fishing protections for both tribal and non-tribal members. Can you respond to that, Alan? Yes, that's that's one of the reasons why we chose the monument, because there are, there are a number of uh, what we call water guzzlers out uh, on that landscape that are maintained by the Nevada uh, Department of Wildlife, but also by by volunteers, and so um, hunting would be allowed, and of course that's controlled by the state. And uh, there's bighorn sheep uh, permits, a very limited number, but hunting for upland game and and for for bighorn sheep and for deer, and obviously the that monument will allow the the access and and such for tribes for ceremonial and gathering purposes and such. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted the monument designation rather than some others that may preclude uh, artificial water uh, enhancement, things like the guzzlers. All right, Alan, thank you for answering that caller question. And Taylor, back to you. I'm going to put you on the spot. I have to. So obviously uh, the dedication has been postponed, but any idea as to when uh, President Biden will make the trip to Nevada and make this formal dedication? It's totally okay to put me on the spot in this one because I have <laughs> no idea. Um, <laughs> I I hope it's soon. You know, I keep just echoing over and over again. It's been a hundred days. We've passed a third of the year waiting for this designation. And, you know, I think we're not picky. You know, if this... Uh, designation has to be in Washington, D.C., we're fine with that. I know Fort Mojave Indian Tribe has said they're fine with that as well. It's just about getting this piece of land designated. You mentioned Bears Ears earlier, and we saw that when the Trump administration downgraded pieces of Bears Ears, that a lot of those cultural sites or ecological sites had damage done to them during that time. You know, without resource, we risk damage being done to Aviquame. So hopefully very, very soon, you know, if I got to pack my bag and we got a road trip, uh, you know, smoke signal style all the way to D.C., <laughs> we'll do it. There you go. Driving backwards in reverse, maybe, even if you have to do that, Taylor, I'm sure you'll make it. Yeah. Uh, we'll what kind? <laughs> what types of events or celebrations are you familiar with that, that tribes and, and organizations such as yourself have planned for when this day finally does come. We are we're we're waiting to put the plans in motion. I think uh you know we expect to have uh some events happening in uh the Las Vegas area as well as you know in the um 
the Laughlin area, my mind blinked for a moment, um, and the Laughlin area as well, um, our wonderful Fort Mojave Indian tribe has their Avi Casino, so I'm hoping to, you know, get a little gambling going down there, support tribal businesses, if you will, um, but we're just waiting to put these plans into motion, and I think the best way we can also celebrate is by, you know, taking a little road trip out there and taking in the land. Mm. Alan, another interesting part of the history to Aviqua May is that it was uh, where the first non-natives entered into the state of Nevada many years ago. That was through the Aviqua May lands. Is that correct? Yeah, that was way back in, what, 1775, 17, I believe it was. It was a Garces expedition, which uh, which entered into Nevada. It was the first non-native uh, um, to enter Nevada, and they they were led by the by members of the Mojave tribe uh, to kind of explore routes uh, west from there, and that morphed into a number of other historic events dealing with the Camel Corps and and other events here. But that was pretty significant uh, event, and there's a number of historical events connected with this landscape from mining to to, uh, to grazing and such. And can you tell us more about Aviqua May as a, a visual resource? Because you mentioned earlier Dark Night Sky. Um, as, as Taylor said, it's, it's a rather spectacular landscape. Uh, the Spirit Mountain itself is part of the Newberry Mountains, which are Granitic Mountains, uh, very uh, uh, dramatic landscape, but there's volcanic uh, ridges like the Castle Mountains, the Highland Range. Highland Range is, is highly scenic, and it's, it's crucial desert bighorn sheep habitat. We have, uh, you know, just we have natural springs throughout the, the landscape. We have all these little... Uh, niches and such, and important canyon areas like Heiko Canyon, um, you know, um, and a number of, uh, you know, uh, petroglyph sites as well within this landscape. And Alan, are you involved in efforts to gain protections for any other lands in addition to Aviquame? Well, as Taylor said, uh, I mean, there is a movement uh, to try and tie down some of some of the special landscapes in Nevada for for permanent protection. One Taylor mentioned just outside on the eastern side of Las Vegas is a Rainbow Gardens Sunrise Mountain area, which uh, in Gypsum Cave there is very important uh, cultural site uh, from a paleontological standpoint and from obviously a Native American standpoint there's also the swamp cedars area up uh up in northern nevada um that's going to be getting uh, a lot of attention to preserve that that cultural landscape as well and uh, that's the ones i'm most familiar with at the present time and taylor for anybody listening to the show today uh maybe in a, far away from nevada and another native community who's interested in federal protections for some of their sacred lands, what can you offer them in terms of advice for how to get the ball rolling? I have been really impressed by just like the sheer amount of stakeholders that have 
participated in the process with VQMA. And I know um, this is a very tricky <laughs> thing to say, but I have been really impressed by green groups, conservation groups recently, and their dedication to elevating tribal voices. And so I would say don't be shy to working with um, non-Native groups. I think we've seen in this project that folks like Allen and um, you know, Western Conservation Foundation, the, the Wilderness Society, lots of folks have been really invested in taking the resources that they have and the contacts that they have and bringing that into these tribally led movements. So I would say don't be shy in working with different stakeholders. We know, of course, that you have to be really careful with what you share and who you share it with. But in my experience, it can be really helpful to have partnerships, particularly for those tribes that are smaller and may not have the resources to go out and, you know, directly talk to their elected officials or hire a lawyer to start the process. You know, having these other stakeholders really helps. I also just want to give the plug that Alan is a phenomenal photographer and has taken some really wonderful pictures of Aviquame that have been posted on the honor of Aviquame social medias and websites. And some of those include um, some pictures of Aviquame under the snow, which we just recently got out here in the desert. So, you know, he's always shy to plug his artwork, but I will always give Alan the additional plug that he does some phen phenomenal work and it is available to look at on our social medias. All right, the plug there for Alan. And Alan, you have also this organization, Get Outdoors Nevada. Tell us more about that. Well, I when I uh, retired from the Park Service, I started uh, a conservation organization called the Outside Las Vegas Foundation, and that that morphed into Get Outdoors Nevada uh, because it went statewide rather than just focusing on the area outside of Las Vegas. And this this is uh, trying to connect people um, to the out to these incredible outdoor environments we have, and it's very strong on volunteer efforts and educational efforts, educating people about their public lands and places that they can enjoy inside. So it's strong on uh, working with the local communities too in their open space and trail programs and such. And so you know, it's really a an opportunity to connect people to the outdoors. That's the focus. And how many years were you with the National Park Service? 34 years. Well, I want to congratulate both of you, uh, not only on your careers, but also just all of this hard work, all of the efforts that you have put into uh, this whole uh, push for protections for Avikwame, along with all these other stakeholders that you folks have mentioned today, other nonprofit organizations, tribal communities as well. It just sounds very much like a like a, a very team effort uh, to move this forward. And Taylor, I would like to, to go back, though. Earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, working with outside organizations, working with some of maybe some of these are larger nonprofits. And could you provide maybe a little bit more detail in, in terms of, of how, you know, maybe a small grassroots tribal organization can work with one of those groups uh, and not get the, the project co-opted perhaps by a larger organization or kind of lose control or, or focus with regard to that effort? Yeah, I think um, right now, as I said, there is such a push um, for tribally led projects. And um, I think it's important to, to know that 
the work that is going to take for this, um, it's going to have to be, it's going to have to be, you know, multi-stakeholder. And I think the best thing that we can do is, you know, it's a little bit outside of our comfort zone sometimes, but really, really be outspoken and, you know, forthcoming with this is the project we're doing. This is what we need from you guys. And I think it's very um, clear right now that tribes are leading all of these land projects and that, you know, you all as tribal leadership or even tribal nonprofits are the stakeholders. This is our land. These are our sacred spaces. And you are not going to do anything to let those people co-opt your project. And so I think there's a certain level of protectiveness that happens over this type of stuff, but also um, really just being able to find that balance of what you share with folks, because I know that's also been a big struggle for a lot of us is, you know, we have these phenomenal cultural resources, but who and how to share them with is always the tricky part. So I think there's definitely a level of trust that needs to happen. And I think exploring um, different uh, green groups, conservation groups before fully committing perhaps to working with them on a long-term basis is also really important. Find the people that you trust and find the organizations that really value your voices and aren't just going to use them for tokenization. And Taylor, where can listeners go to learn more about your work and of Equal Me? Yeah, so uh, you can go to our website, nativevotesnv, as in Nevada, .org. Uh, most of social media, we're on as NVA underscore Nevada. So, you know, we are always posting different stuff. We have events happening all of the time. And, um, you know, right now we're working on the legislative session. So lots coming up. Well, folks, that is all the time we have for today's show on national monument status for land known as Aviqua May in Nevada. I want to thank both my guests today, Taylor Patterson and Alan O'Neill. We are back again tomorrow exploring some of the financial help available for Native residents who are struggling to pay their heating bills. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.